good morning again, New Life Church, and to all of our friends who are joining us from different parts of the world. Uh, welcome to our, our Lord's Day here in the Gulf on a Friday as we worship through this medium of the, the live stream. We have been going through a mini-series on elder-led congregationalism. Uh, Pedro has been laying a foundation for all of us uh, to helping us understand what is the church and today we're going to be looking again at Matthew chapter 16. We are going to examine what Jesus meant when he talks about the rock upon which he will build his church and the, the gates of hell and the keys of the kingdom. And once we have a better understanding of this text, I'm going to try and show you how this all applies to the biblical understanding of elder-led congregationalism. So if you have your Bibles, please would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 16. We are going to read this morning from verse 13 to verse 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Uh, please pray with me quickly as we ask the Lord's blessings upon the preaching of the word this morning. Father, we do pray that the meditation of our hearts and um, the words of our mouths, Lord, would be pleasing and acceptable to you today. I ask for your help, Lord, as I expound this passage. I pray, Lord, that none of, none of your words would fall to the floor today, fall to the ground, that our hearts would be ready to receive it, and that um, the seed that is sown would bear fruit for your glory for eternity, Lord. So we ask for your help. We ask for the Spirit, Lord, to teach us um, and help us to respond correctly today. In Jesus' name I ask. Amen. So I remember very clearly as a, as a young adult the desire that the Lord put into my heart to go into full-time ministry. I didn't know uh, where that would happen. I didn't know uh, when that this would happen. I didn't know um, where as, as well. But I had to lean on the elders of, of my church to look for guidance in this, this area. I read a lot of books, I listened to a lot of sermons, I attended many different conferences, and there were a lot of things that I learned during that time as I was seeking the Lord's will for my life. I had a lot of questions and a lot of unknowns, but I remember very clearly the truths that I learned during that time, that Christ loves His church, and that He gave His life for her, and that He promised to build it. Those were truths that impacted me tremendously, and they made, they, they made an eternal difference 
um, in my life, I couldn't shake these truths. I thought to myself, well, if Christ promised to build His church, then He will build it. And I want to be part of helping build His church. And if Christ loved the church enough to die for her, and, and if I love Christ, then I have to love His, his church, warts and all. And the Lord's impressing those truths on me were what caused me to eventually commit myself to becoming a church planter in India for 15 years and now to serve the local church here in the, in the UAE. But hopefully today I can impress upon you these same truths so that you would see afresh why the, the church matters, why the church matters so much to Christ and why it needs to matter to us as well. In fact, that's the title of my sermon this morning from Matthew 16, Why the Church Matters. So let's start in verse 13 this morning. Notice there in verse 13, Jesus asks His disciples, He doesn't ask Peter, He asks His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they reply in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the most crucial question for every person to answer in verse 15. Who do you say that I am? Our eternal destiny really hinges on the answer to that question. In fact, we need to get that question right. Um, in order to have salvation in Christ Jesus our Lord, in order to have eternity, to spend eternity with our Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. But we know Peter gave the right answer, and his very well-known answer is recorded for us in verse 16. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So my first point this morning comes from verse 16. The church is built... On the gospel. Remember, Peter giving this answer wasn't giving it from his own understanding. He wasn't even giving it from his, his own education. We know that because Jesus said that this was revealed to him by the Father, God the Father, and that could only come from, from God the Father um, when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the, the living God. So the word Christ there means that, or, or Jesus speaking here, was saying that, that He is the, the Jewish Messiah, or He is the anointed one. That's what Christ means. And this same Messiah that we talk about in the Old Testament is the same word as Christ in the, the New Testament. But this same Messiah is prophesied about in over 300 Old Testament prophecies. Uh, for example, we, we know Psalm 22 and very famous Isaiah 53 that predict the Messiah's suffering on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And then we know of Psalm 2 and then Daniel chapter 7, which proclaim Him as the future ruler over all the kingdoms of the earth. And Psalm 110 reveals the Messiah both as David's son and as David's Lord. But I want to show you a verse from the Old Testament in Zechariah. If you have a Bible, or the, the verse will be shown on the screen. Zechariah chapter 12, 
verse 10, The Lord proclaims, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for any for an only child, and weep bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. This verse is proclaiming the very deity of, of Christ. It talks about his death, it talks about his his resurrection, and it talks about the future coming of the Messiah in glory, um, which will result in a widespread conversion of, of the Jewish people. And there are dozens of more astounding prophecies that G- Jesus himself has either fulfilled or yet will fulfill in the, in the future. But Peter's pronouncement that Jesus is this Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of the living God is really a parallel way of saying that He is the fulfillment of these prophecies from the Old Testament, that He is none less than the Messiah of the Bible. But it also reveals Jesus to be the eternal second person of the Trinity. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good person. He is, in fact, God Himself. And Peter correctly answers this question. But look at verse 17 there. In verse 17, Jesus affirms Peter's answer on behalf of my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus says in verse 18 and verse 19, responding now to to Peter's answer, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then look at verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now before we go any further, there are a few controversial issues here which we need to clear up. Firstly, who or or what is the rock that is mentioned there in verse um, 18? And of course, these controversial issues come from different interpretations of the Scriptures. You know, the Roman Catholic Church says that this verse means that Peter himself is the rock. And they say that the, the first pope Um, was Peter, and that he can claim a direct line of succession from every other pope that's that's followed him. But the problem with that interpretation is that here in the Bible, here in this passage, there is no mention here of Peter's supreme authority. And there's no mention here of his successors who would become popes. There's nothing mentioned there. The other interpretation says that Peter is not the rock, but Peter's confession is the rock. I want you to see that difference there. Chrysostom, who was an early church father, he said, Jesus did not say upon Peter, 
For it was not upon the man, but upon his faith that he would build the church. Well, I think the second interpretation is more accurate, is more biblically accurate. But Jesus is not only going to build his church on words. He's going to build his church on the words of people. I don't think we need to separate the two. Jesus is going to build his church on people who believe the right gospel. Jesus will build his church on confessors or professors of the gospel. Jesus was going to build his church on the rock, or rather the foundation of the Father's revelation that he is the promised Christ. In other words, Jesus was going to build his church on Peter's confession of the gospel. Can I say that again? Jesus was going to build his church on Peter's confession of the gospel. Remember the context here. Remember the context. Jesus has asked his disciples who they thought that he was. And Peter, on behalf of the 12 disciples, he answers, you're the Christ, the son of the the living God in verse 16. And Jesus acknowledges Peter's right answer and reminds him that the Father in heaven revealed that truth to him. Jesus then tells Peter, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Jesus' point is that the foundation of the church is the gospel, first revealed to Peter and to the apostles. There's nothing mystical about this. In fact, there's nothing even hidden about this. And there's nothing in here that talks about Peter being the Pope. If we get this point wrong, we get all the other points wrong here in this passage. And we get such a skewed view and a wrong understanding of what the church is and the authority of the the keys of the kingdom. And unfortunately, this wrong understanding we see in so many places on earth today. You know, there are thousands of gatherings claiming to be churches and thousands of people claiming to be ministers of these churches. But remember, folks, all that glitters is not gold. And all that wears a cross is not Christian. Now, genuine believers do not confess Jesus just as a, as a good prophet or a, or a moral preacher or a teacher. <clears throat> or they do not just confess him as a way to get healthy, wealthy, or prosperous. The foundation of the church is based on the biblical gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's based on people who confess it correctly. Jesus promised to build his church on people who believe the biblical gospel. Jesus will build his church on confessors of the true gospel. My second point this morning from verse 17 to 19 is that the church has the authority to proclaim and to defend the gospel. The church has the authority to proclaim and to defend the gospel. Remember in verse 16, Peter gives his answer. Then in verse 17 and 19, Jesus responds. If you have a a red letter edition Bible, you'll notice that all of these verses here now in verse that we are reading, in verse 17 to 19, are in red. And that's because 
Jesus himself is, is speaking. So read there with me in Matthew 16, verse 17 and 19. <clears throat> and Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Look at verse 18 there with me, if you would. What are the gates of hell mentioned there? And in verse 19, what does Jesus mean by the keys of the kingdom and binding and, and loosing? Well, this is where the other controversial issues come from, from the same verse. And again, from an incorrect understanding of the Scriptures here. Remember, when it comes to studying the Bible, there are many applications that we can make. <clears throat> but there is only one correct biblical interpretation. There's only one correct interpretation that the original author has intended. We cannot change his intention. We cannot change his words. These, these issues come from wrong interpretations. And from this verse, a wrong interpretation of the words of Jesus. Look at verse 19 where it talks about the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing. The Roman Catholic Church interprets this to mean that Peter and his successors, the popes and, and the priests under them, have the authority now to forgive human sins. And they have the authority not to forgive human sins. But how is that possible? Since it's only God who can see what is in the hearts of, of humans, no priest or no pope can know enough to pronounce authoritatively that that someone is forgiven or not forgiven. And these priests and these popes, they don't have the authority to do that. They haven't died for our sins. They haven't paid the price that Jesus has. Remember what the scriptures say. There is one mediator between God and man. And that is, that is Christ Jesus, our Lord. I'm sure all of you were, were responding there. I just wasn't hearing anything from the studio here. So rather what Jesus was meaning is that Peter, who is representing the apostles, he had the authority to proclaim the gospel of forgiveness of sins. The gospel of forgiveness of sins to all who would believe and repent. And of course... That authority comes with the judgment as well to all of those who refuse the gospel, all of those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. And we see this happening in the Bible. We see, this, we see Peter doing this with the Jews on the, the day of Pentecost in, in Acts chapter 2. And we see him doing this with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. We see the same thing with the Gentiles in, in Acts chapter 10. And we have the apostolic testimony to God's way of salvation right throughout the, the New Testament. As members of the church, Christ has entrusted to us the most important message in the world. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. 
as God's free gift. That is the message that we get to proclaim authoritatively. But those who do not believe will remain condemned in their sins. So basically, the gospel is the key here in our passage. The gospel is the key that opens the door to the kingdom. The door to the kingdom of heaven to those who repent and those who believe. But it's also the the key, the gospel is the key that shuts the door to the kingdom of heaven to those who refuse to believe. Turn with me quickly to Matthew chapter 18. Let me give you an example of this. In Matthew chapter 18, just two chapters, just one extra chapter over, we see here Jesus giving the same authority to the church. Here in Matthew 16, he gives the authority to to Peter and to the apostles. But in Matthew chapter 18, he's giving this authority to the church. Look at Matthew 18 verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So the context of this is church discipline, okay? There are four steps here, and I hope you notice these steps. We're not going to go through this in detail, but the context here is church discipline. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even to the church, then let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, let him be put out of the church. Gentiles and tax collectors were unbelievers. They couldn't be part of the regenerated church of Christ. But look at verse 18. Truly I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Now, please don't misinterpret this passage. Verse 20 is not talking about two people, two Christians playing golf on a Friday during, during the Sabbath, okay? Or, or even a, a little Bible study where, where, where they pray and they say, Lord, you are amongst us. Please bless us, our gathering, and um, please make sure that I do well on my golf, golf game today. Okay? The context here is the church. The context here is the church. But notice verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Does this verse look or sound familiar to you? I hope it does, because we've just been looking at it in in Matthew 16, that same language that that Jesus used when he was talking to Peter about the keys. Only this time, he's not talking just to Peter. The you in verse 18 is plural. Here, Jesus is giving the keys of the kingdom To the gathered church. To the gathered church. So here again, in the context of church discipline, it becomes clear that part of the authority of the keys is to judge the credibility 
of an individual's profession of faith. In the case of the sinner who refuses to repent, suppose someone in our, in our church is, is involved in a gross sin and, and we approach them and we ask them what has happened and we call them to repentance and they refuse to listen to us. Then we, according to Matthew 18, we do this privately one-on-one. If they don't listen one-on-one, then we have to bring a witness. That's the second step. After that, if the person still refuses to repent, then we have to bring it to the church. That's the third step. And once the church knows about it, the whole church is supposed to go after this individual and call them to repentance, call them to obedience to Christ. And if they still refuse to obey, the fourth step is to treat them as a as a Gentile and a tax collector, to put them out of the church. To remove them from membership. This is the authority that Jesus now is giving the church. The congregation. Notice that, folks. The congregation. It's not the elders of this church. He's not talking to Peter in Matthew 18. He's talking to the congregation. The congregation has the authority to remove him or her from membership and treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, how do we treat a Gentile and a tax collector? Well, we hate them, don't we? We throw stones at them, don't we? No, no, no. Maybe we don't like them, the tax collectors especially, but we still love them and we still share the gospel with them and we're still kind to them. Notice there, only God has authority to judge whether or not someone is truly a Christian. Again, we are, not, we are not God. The Pope is not God. We can't look into somebody's heart to see whether they've truly confessed or truly repented. But Jesus has given the church the authority to judge. Many people don't like that word, especially in this PC culture that we, we live in today. But we are called to judge. We are to judge whether or not an individual's profession of faith is genuine or whether it is counterfeit or whether it is false. So a professing Christian who continues in unrepentant sin, of course, is not acting like a true Christian, not acting like a Christian from the Scriptures. And therefore, the church cannot confirm his credibility or her credibility. And the church has to remove this person And that is what congregational government really is all about. And that's what we've been trying to teach you and show you through this mini-series. We care for one another. We build each other up until we reach Christ-like maturity. But this is the congregation that is doing this, folks. Even though the elders lead and they equip and they teach, they help us to perform this ministry. It is the congregation that is responsible for this. It is the congregation that has the keys of the kingdom. It is the congregation that has this authority. Folks, we need to become a church that takes our responsibilities seriously. And every member is involved in the ministry of the church. It's not just the elders, not just the ministry leaders. Every member. This is really the apex of our 
of our passage this morning. And this is what we as elders are, are trying to communicate to you and show you from God's Word. And this is why we are convinced we need to change to elder-led congregational church government, where the whole church is involved, where the whole church takes responsibilities, rather than, than just the elders. You know, according to our Constitution, and we've, I think we've shown you this at the members' meeting, it is the elders who have the responsibility when it comes to admitting someone into the church. And it's our responsibility putting somebody out of the church. But it shouldn't be like that. And we see that clearly from Matthew chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 16. Jesus has given the authority of the keys to the congregation, to the church. Not just the elders, but the church. And all local churches have this authority, and they exercise this same authority, or they should exercise the same authority that Jesus exercised with Peter in, in chapter 16. The church has the authority to consider someone's confession of faith and their life and to announce an official judgment on, on heaven's behalf. On heaven's behalf, folks. The work is very much comparable to the work that a, a courtroom judge performs. A judge doesn't make the law, and he doesn't make a person innocent or, or guilty. What a judge does is he interprets the law, and he interprets the person in front of him, and then he pronounces judgment, and he takes the gavel and he, and he pounds the gavel, and he pronounces guilty or not guilty. And that's the same picture here, and that, that's the same image as with the church. The church who uses the authority of the keys of the kingdom correctly, they don't abuse this authority. They don't make the gospel what it is. They don't, they don't abuse it. They don't make a person a Christian or not. They don't have the authority to do that. But rather, they, they listen to what the Christian is confessing. And they consider this person's life. And then they give a judgment on heaven's behalf. They make a public pronouncement with the, the, the bam of a, of a gavel, member of the church or, or not a member. And that's very similar to what we've been trying to do through our recent membership process. And that's why we keep on putting the pictures of the, the member candidates on the screen for the church, the congregation, to exercise their authority. This is not just about the elders. And even though we've done the interview, have you spoken to these new member candidates? Do you know for sure whether they are professors of the genuine gospel? If we bring them into the church, we need your help to do that. Have you asked them about their, their testimony of salvation? And the authority applies for bringing a person into membership, but it also applies to, bring, to separating a person from the membership of the church. Church discipline, as we've seen in, in Matthew chapter 18. Let me bring this to a close this morning, my third point. The church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. We see this in verse 18. 
There in verse 18, Jesus calls it my church. Notice that. And this means that New Life Church doesn't belong to Pastor Gareth. New Life Church doesn't belong to Pastor Pedro. New Life Church doesn't belong to Pastor Ray or to Pastor Rob. No pastor can claim that any church is his church. It's Christ's church. He bought it with his blood. The church belongs exclusively to Jesus Christ. No one, no matter how influential they are, or even how much money they may have given to the church, or even to the, the building of a building, they cannot claim that they own the church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Christ owns it. He only allows us to, to serve in it for His kingdom purposes. And the authority that the church has is a given authority. And it's been given to us by Christ. The church belongs to Christ. We are, we are stewards. We are stewards of the, the gospel and, and stewards of the, the keys of the, the kingdom of heaven. Look there in verse 18. Jesus said, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, that's a, it's a wonderful metaphor that we've been given here. We have a metaphor of a rock, and now we have the second metaphor of, of these gates. Well, in the ancient world, the, the, the city gates were the place where the leaders congregated to do their official business. Um, it was a figure of speech for, for government authority, very similar to if we were to say parliament or, um, or even the White House, so to speak. This was the place where they would meet. And I think that Jesus meant that all the powers of hell cannot stop his church from ultimately triumphing over the powers of darkness. Notice the gates there, folks. The gates are not around heaven. The gates are around hell. Hell is on the defensive. It is heaven that is attacking. It is heaven that is going to break these gates. It's not the other way around. As a youngster, I thought it was, was hell that was trying to conquer heaven. But it's the other way around. It is heaven that is going to destroy these gates. It is heaven that is going to destroy these gates. It is the church. That he, that it is the church that represents heaven. And in spite of the church's many shortcomings, and in spite of the failures, eventually the church will reign with Christ in glory. Now, evil rulers have tried to destroy the church throughout the ages, through persecution. You know, communism, atheistic communism tried to eradicate Christianity in Europe and Eastern Europe. Islam spread over North Africa, effectively wiping out the church for centuries. Even today, Hinduism dominates India. And then you have a Buddhism which prevails in Southeast Asia. And yet, Jesus made this prophecy in Matthew chapter 24. Look there in verse 14. 
this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole earth as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Do we not have a slide for that one? Let me read that again. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. That is a very serious prophecy, a very important prophecy. This present evil world will perish under God's judgment. We see that in, in 2 Peter. And then another prophecy in Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. I've got that slide there for you as well. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. So see where we're going here, folks. Christ promised to build His church, and His promises will not fail. When we commit ourselves to His church, we're committed to the only cause that will triumph. But just a word of caution here. Just a word of caution against complacency. When Jesus says in Matthew 16 that He will build His church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, it doesn't mean that the gates of hell will not prevail against New Life Church. Christ is talking here about the invisible church that Pedro explained to us. Remember in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus is in the middle of the seven lampstands. And the seven lampstands are the, the seven churches to, to which the letters were, were written to. And Jesus is in the middle of them. And then in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus warns the church of Ephesus. He says, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now we know from history, folks, that Christ removed that lampstand from Ephesus. Even though the church of Ephesus was perhaps the strongest church in the province of Asia Minor, which is, which is modern-day Turkey today, the lampstand of the church of Ephesus was removed as the Lord promised it would because of their lack of repentance. So can I make this personal this morning here? The keys of the kingdom are all about authority. But with that authority comes responsibility. If we, I'm talking about New Life Church here, if we do not take our, responsibi our responsibilities seriously, we could end up just like the church at Ephesus. I know that this pandemic has created many challenges for us as a church but let me give you a few statistics here to help you see the, the gravity of this. You know, pre-COVID, our church attendance was in the average of 160 people. Now, during COVID, talking about our church attendance on a Thursday, we have an average of 40 people. Do the maths there. That's a quarter of the people that we once had are now gathering with us to worship our Lord, gathering. 
And we as a, as a church have, have also had to say goodbye to, to many people, and that hasn't helped. Many people who've lost jobs because of COVID. And we haven't had a place of our, of our own set apart for the work of the Lord, which hasn't helped. And we have had to, to travel 40 minutes to another church compound in order to meet just for an hour on Thursday nights, and I know this, this hasn't helped. But our membership, I'm talking about people who signed our church covenant. Our membership pre-COVID was 90 members. Now, we have 60 members. And that's a third of our membership, which is now gone since COVID. But if you go through our membership list on our directory, you notice that the members are, the colors are, the, the photographs are in colors and, and the attendants are in, in black and white. But you'll notice that we have less than 40 members, 40 out of those 60 who are actively serving at New Life Church at, at the moment. And I, I fully understand that there are health issues to consider. Believe me, I fully understand that. But what about the most important issue that, that we are facing? That Christ will build His church. What about the eternal issue here? What about the fact that Christ loves His church and gave His life for her? Isn't that worth living and dying for? Isn't this something that, that you would want to be a part of? Rather than finding excuses to not come to our gatherings on a, on a Thursday, shouldn't we be looking for, for reasons to attend? What greater reason do we need, folks, than the promise that Jesus has given us in His, his Word, that Christ loves His church and gave His life for her, and He promises to build it. And we have the privilege to be part of that. Isn't that a reason to celebrate? Isn't that a reason to gather and to worship our risen Savior? I don't know how long this coronavirus is still going to cause challenges for us as a church. But the fact is, if we don't take our responsibilities seriously, we could end up closing our doors after another year of nominal attendance and nominal involvement. That is a real reality, folks. And, and we won't be the only ones. I'm not just talking about us. There are other churches that I know of who have closed down because of COVID and all the challenges and the restrictions that people have faced. I know of smaller churches that have, that have merged with, with larger churches just in order to survive and for the people to be, to be shepherded. I read of a predicted statistic in the U.S. just this week that 20% of churches across the country will be forced to close at the end of 2021. And I can't say anything about those churches, whether they're taking their responsibility seriously or not. I don't know these churches. But I do know New Life Church. I do know the people in New Life Church. And folks, we need to remember that even though this pandemic is causing such devastation, we need to remember that God is not dead. God is not dead. 
God is using this pandemic for His redemptive purposes. And maybe, just maybe, He's using this virus to to purify His church. We know for sure that Christ is building His church and that he, He loves His church. But shouldn't we be loving the church, warts and all? Shouldn't we be loving the church despite the difficult circumstances that we are facing? Shouldn't we be loving the church despite the challenges? I think many Christians don't put the local church at the center of their lives, pre-COVID anyway. And now in the middle of COVID, we've got other challenges that we have to overcome. And I think a lot of the, the problem is people are too focused on themselves, too focused on themselves, and they don't understand why the church matters. They're not willing to take responsibility. They don't understand the authority that God has given the church. And the church matters, folks. It really matters. There are eternal consequences here. And the church is at the center of God's eternal plan for this world. And I urge you, New Life Church, and I beg you today, New Life Church, take your responsibility seriously. If you are not a member, why not? Why not come and speak to us? Take your responsibility seriously. Commit yourself to the church to help it become all that God wants it to be. For His glory and for our joy. Pray with me. Father, we thank You for this passage this morning. And I know there are a lot of there is a lot of misunderstanding in these few verses. But we thank you for your spirit this morning who has opened our eyes to the truth of this passage. And Father, even though I've made a few applications from this passage this morning, I pray that your spirit would continue to help us see the responsibility that we have throughout this week. Help, us, help him to apply this passage to us this week so that we can live our lives for your glory and not for our own selfish purposes, Lord. So that we would be involved more and more with what matters to you, Lord, rather than what has no eternal consequences. Father, please, I pray that you would change our thinking, change our hearts if we need to repent of sin, of complacency, of disobedience, of making excuses for, for not gathering or not being involved or not ministering. Change our minds, change our hearts today, Lord so that we can become more like you and that we can honor you through the ministry of, of New Life Church. Father, please take your word and continue to use it and seal it in our hearts for your glory. We ask this prayer in Jesus' precious name.